So I want to just welcome everybody today uh, who missed the call earlier to the Truth and Consequences Zoomcast. Uh, we are to joined today by the lovely and talented Tom Schaller, who is a professor at University of Maryland, uh, Baltimore County, um, and who uh, has written a number of books on American politics, the best of which I think is Whistling Past Dixie, which came out in... <laughs> Tom also has a dog, uh, for those of you who are curious. <laughs> Uh, and so 2007, <coughs> 2008, your book came out, Tom? Yeah, uh, 2006, sorry. It came out about a month before the 2006 midterms, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and in the initial... Whistling Past Dixie. Right, and in, Whistling Past Dixie, and I think in, in the initial um, Q&A, <coughs> excuse me, that I did when I started the newsletter, I, I interviewed Tom about that Um that book, which uh, really was very prescient in 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 sort of uh, highlighting the the need for Democrats to sort of write off the South and focus on other um, the Midwest and the Far West and the Northeast as places for political opportunity. And you've read another book called Breakthrough, which came out. Th- came out what year was that? Uh, no, you're talking about. Um, geez, I can't remember the name of my own book. Um, Stronghold. Stronghold. Sorry. Yeah, stronghold. I'm thinking of it. I'm actually thinking no, you're of talking it. about the new book, which is more of a sports and politics book. Yeah. Right. Right. And so the new book is out now. New book comes out from University of Nebraska Press in November. I don't have an exact date, but uh, it's about sports and college sports and race and the politics of race and college sports in the 1980s. Awesome. Awesome. And so, Tom is to his credit, a, a big uh, Boston Red Sox fan. And we have attended many not many, but several Boston Red Sox games together. Anyway, uh, I asked Tom to join me today because he wrote a really, I think, really smart and insightful piece um, for the newsletter this week about uh, sort of the looking at polarization, which, of course, is a big issue here at Truth and Consequences, um, but taking a bit of a different take on it and sort of making kind of an argument as to how possibly we get out of this cycle we're in of, of recrimination and division in American politics. But I want to start off by just sort of, since you are a, a political science professor and you obviously teach a lot of classes on political history, um, is this, this moment we're living in now as far as the, this era of polarization? I mean, in your experience, in your, you know, knowledge of American politics, is there anything that remotely compares to this in modern American history as far as the level of division we're seeing now? No, nothing in modern history. The only thing that's even close in terms of statistically, in terms of the division of the two parties was the, uh, you know, the late 19th century, sort of after Reconstruction, when we had, you know, this has been in the news lately, we were talking about like Manchin's bipartisanship. And then a lot of people have mentioned that so many important uh, changes, particularly for the expansion of rights and protections for African Americans, uh, were passed with party line votes with the then more progressive and liberal Republican Party voting for it and the Southern Democratic Party voting against it. So um, we did have an era that was similar in terms of the polarization uh, that we have today. But I think today's polarization is much different because that polarization in the late 19th century was essentially a polarization and a conversation between and among almost exclusively white citizens, whereas today's polarization is much, much different uh, for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is the fact that uh, the country is, a you know, much more pluralistic uh, and not just on race, of course. Right. I mean, I, I think back to things, for example, the, the, during the, and I, you know, as, as you know, I've written a book in 1968 and Politics was pretty, a great deal of divisions then as well. But one big difference, I think, is that 
you know, even in, in um, the, the divisions were in many ways uh, between inside the parties, they're intra-party divisions, right? Among Democrats, you had divisions among uh, liberal anti-war uh, activists, and then you had among uh, an establishment Democrats. And Republicans, you had, you had divides between conservative Republicans, moderate Republicans, you know, those kind of divisions um, don't really exist in the same way now. I mean, there's a remarkable amount of consensus with, among Democrats. I mean, there are differences of opinion here and there, but there's a remarkable amount of, of, of unanimity. And among Republicans, there's also unanimity to a large extent, and that is basically in support for Donald Trump. Uh, so that to me seems like a one really big change that I think is maybe not fully factored into how we think about what's happening to American politics. But the parties are much more unified, much more homogenous, which means all the divisions are much more between the parties rather than inside the parties. Yeah, I mean, there's been this debate that's been going on for quite a long time, political science, and though there are many, many authors who have sort of waded into it. It's a debate sort of between Alan Abramowitz and the people who say polarization is is very real, and a guy named David Mayhew who said, you know, the country's not as polarized and there is still a big middle. And uh, I've known Alan for a long time. He's a fantastic political scientist and a mentor. Very good, yes. Really university. And uh, I remember being on a panel with Alan. Uh, this had to be during the Bush administration. This was before Obama and before Trump, who, you know, are polarizing politicians, but not because necessarily they're politics, but because the country is polarized. And I remember him pointing out in, in a presentation that it, well into the 1990s, and certainly through the 70s and 80s, you couldn't predict somebody's position on abortion based on the position on tax cuts, for example, or government regulation, because they sort of moved orthogonally to each other. They didn't move it in tandem. Right. But, but by the early 2000s, and certainly today, you can predict in either direction, right? You can predict somebody's position on tax cuts based on their position on abortion and vice versa. And of course, we've seen like the Christian right saying, well, in the Bible, you know, Jesus would be for tax cuts and be right. I mean, there's absurd claims. And it just shows you that the economic dimension and the social dimensions have converged in a way that they simply didn't. And they weren't predictive of each other. They didn't correlate strongly, except for maybe with some, some subsets of the population. And this is this just ideological sorting, right, that we have had. And we don't have, uh, you know, any more Southern white. Uh, male Democrats left, and uh, we have very few, um, you know, conservatives from parts of the Northeast and the far West states and so forth, uh, in a way that we used to have that sort of two-party consensus, as you wrote about a little bit in your 1968 book on foreign policy more, but, uh, and other topics. But, uh, you know, we used to have sort of a two-party consensus because right. we had conservative Democrats in the South and in the Plain States, and we used to have liberal Republicans from places like Massachusetts. And, uh, you know, I think of Silvio Conti, for example, who you know, in terms of his foreign policy politics, who's probably a, a distant relative, or was a distant relative because my mother's maiden name is Conti and Silvio right. means he's probably from this island of Ponza, where my relatives are from, because San Silverio. So uh, Silvio Conti is a name who's, you know, uh, is a kind of person who simply couldn't get elected. And, and, you know, I guess Scott Brown briefly won Kennedy's seat there, but those those people don't exist anymore. Um, you know, to me, the, the paradigmatic example today right now is Richard Shelby, right, who used to be, well, Richard Shelby, right? He used to be a conservative Democratic senator right. from Alabama, switched parties, and now He's a pretty hardcore right-wing Republican senator. Um, usually the transition isn't in the same person. It's usually you lose in a primary, you lose in a general election, or you retire, or you die, and you're replaced by somebody uh, from the other party. But that's where we are. And um, the, the country looks like a barbell with a very, very thin bar holding 
you know, these sort of two, you know, the country used to look like, like the MasterCard symbol with two circles overlapping and a big Venn diagram overlapping right. in the middle, but th- there simply isn't that anymore. And um, it makes it very hard to forge the kind of compromises that, you know, we're talking about now, whether it's something over the infrastructure plan of Joe Manchin, who's one of the rare people that's on that barbell. Right. I mean, I was thinking, I, I, I was, this is my, the stat that I always find kind of remarkable that in 2009, when Barack Obama won, which was, he got, he won a pretty significant margin. Um, it's like a seven or eight point victory. Yeah, there 7.3. were three. I'm sorry. Yeah, seven point three is general. Yeah, there were um there were thirteen uh Democratic senators in states that uh John McCain had won thirteen, um which is a lot considering that McCain didn't do very well in that election, um and now there are three uh Democratic senators in states that Donald Trump won and there are three Republican senators in states that that Biden. So you know, and I even more remarkable in two thousand nine. Three of the four senators from the Dakotas were Democrats. That, that's an, I mean, seems stunning today to think that's even right. possible. So, you know, it strikes me that what, what you have is a situation in which people just don't split their, their votes anymore. And you saw this in 2020. I mean, I, I, this is something I wrote about that I don't think got nearly enough attention that if you look at got the, 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 on the Senate side, the number of Senate votes that Republican candidates got and that Trump got, they were nearly identical in most of the states. There were very few places where there was a big gap between Republican votes for senator and and president. Maine is the one exception. Susan Collins is the one exception to the rule. Um, but by and large, you had people who were who were uh, you just saw people voting party line, making party line votes. Um, and I don't see much evidence that's going to that's change. In fact, I go back to something interesting. I was a good piece in the Washington Post this week by Dave Weigel. I, I mentioned in the newsletter yesterday about the fact that the argument that progressives are not winning these uh, primaries. They didn't do very well in the Virginia primary uh, in some of the races. The more moderate candidates won. But it seems to be one of the reasons that's happening is because Democrats have turned so far to the left uh, that you can elect a more establishment candidate who's still pretty progressive. Like Terry McAuliffe, who is now the, the Democratic nominee for governor in Virginia, Again, always seen as kind of like this slippery centrist establishment guy, you know, worked for the Clintons and what have you, who, when he was governor, was one of the most progressive governors in the country. And while he's not as progressive as he ran against in the primary, he's still pretty damn progressive. And I think for a lot of Democrats, they can say, I can vote for Terry McCullough because he's progressive, but also he can actually get elected uh, in a statewide election. Yeah, I mean, I think the reason McAuliffe was viewed that way, or was viewed that way, of course, because he's the right-hand sort of buddy and dolphin buddy of Bill Clinton, and Bill Clinton was clearly, you know, self-defined as a centrist who ran against the Dukakis wing of the party or whatever in the 1980s in his famous DLC speech that he gave in Cleveland in 1991. But it's fair to say that McAuliffe has moved, right? And 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 yes. the way I sort of, but but I would say if if there were no, you know. uh 25th Amendment and Bill Clinton decided to throw his hat in the ring in 2024, he would run and maybe win, but he would run on a different platform than the platform he himself ran Very in different 1992, platform. right? And right. so that movement is not unique to Terry Colliffe or McAuliffe or Bill Clinton for that matter. No, no, I agreed, agreed. And Joe Biden certainly has moved in that direction as well. I mean, I think the argument is that in his own career. Yeah, progressives are kind of lost. They're losing the battle, but they won the war, right? They may be losing some of these individual races, but they've moved the party in a very, in a very, very progressive direction, um, which I think is, and I think, in fact, you talk about Joe Manchin a lot. I mean, when you look at someone like Manchin, he really is a kind of a unicorn because you, you used to have moderate Senate Democrats like this who would hold up legislation, who would demand bipartisanship, who, 
you know, would have to worry about looking sort of centrist. And he's kind of the only one, him and Kirsten Cinema, which is a whole weird thing in itself, are only two really left that are doing that. The rest of them have basically adopted kind of progressive positions for the most part. Um, it's a really inc- extraordinary shift. I think it's underappreciated, but, I, but I'm curious if you agree. I think it also explains a lot of why we become more polarized. Well, I mean, there used to be like 30 years ago, if you took the most liberal Democrat in the Senate, you took the most conservative Republican in the Senate, half of the senators, Senate Democrats or Republicans, were in between those two. Now there's zero, right? There's zero because the most liberal Republican is still to the right of the most conservative Democrat. That's right. That's so right. it's a null Senate bill. Again, like there's, it's not a distribution that looks like a bell curve. It looks like a barbell. And so, um, it doesn't, it doesn't, it shouldn't surprise anybody who's paying attention to all these indicators, which I put a bunch of links, as you know, in the piece that I wrote for you yesterday. Right. Um, every indicator, a mass indicator, public attitudes about, do I want my kids to marry somebody from a different party? Do I view the other party as a threat? Every single one of them is, is, is indicating more polarization. And then all the elite measures, party line votes, the distribution of, uh, of, uh, of senators and their ideological ADA scores or whatever, or the ACE, American conservative, it doesn't matter which ideological score sheet you use. And we just don't have a middle left. And, um, you know, maybe among the electorate we do, but because we have single member district rally rule, we effectively have a two-party system now that could change if we start to see things like we're seeing in new york with like you know approval voting or rank choice voting and those sorts right. of things the things that lee drutman and other people are calling for a structure reform to end polarization and, and that could happen but i i'm a cynic about that as you know because as i said in the piece like the two parties they disagree on everything except for the two-party system to which they ha- share this uh you know uh duopoly and uh, have a sort of confederates in that regard so you made an interesting point in the piece that I had not really considered before, but I think, uh, you know, it's worth amplifying. You said that one of the problems we have here is that because the parties are so evenly divided, neither party can gain dominance, which it means in the sense that uh, it's hard for – if one party was dominating, you know, consistently, then – you would see possibly moderation by the other party in response to that. But that's not happened. And that's happened in the past, but it's not happening now. And I think one thing that you and I always talk about this, this is uh, a constant refrain that you have to have a conversation. This, this, this fact that I've always come up at least one time, the Democrats have won the popular vote in seven of the last eight presidential elections. That has not happened before. I think ever in American history, maybe not since the 19th century. Uh, the Republicans won seven out of nine presidential elections in the Electoral College between Lincoln in 1860 and, uh, and right. 1992. And then they did it again, seven out of nine, but not seven out of eight in the popular. That has never happened. That's true. Yeah, it's rather extraordinary um, transformation. And I mean, rather extraordinary dominance. And yet it hasn't led to a moderation in Republican policies in large measure because they can, because first of all, though they've lost seven, they've, they've actually won uh, three of those. Two elections. Of those. Yeah, right. uh, well, three, right. 2000, 2004, 2016. Right. Well, you know, seven out of the eight, three out of the eight, though. but two out of the seven that they, yeah, right. Sure. Right. Right. They're I mean, here, here's a metaphor I, I teach my students about polarization. Like think of a seesaw for a second, right? Think of a seesaw and it's, it's a seesaw and it's evenly balanced and you've got three, you know, 10 year old kids who weigh 80 pounds or whatever on either side and they're spaced out in such a way. So the seesaw is literally balanced, right? That's essentially the, the parties are equally competitive. Now, to win in a seesaw fight, you, you want to pull your side down and put the other sides up. So how, how would you move the seesaw in your favor? Now, 
the two big arguments over the last 30 years that we've been arguing about is, is it conversion or is it mobilization? So conversion would be like you reach across the fulcrum and you pull a kid on your side. Now you got more weight. So you, you've right. won the seesaw battle. That's conversion, right? And for well into the early Bush years, Mark Penn, right? It was all about that. It was all about swing voters, right? Office park dads and NASCAR dads and soccer moms. And how can we just sway a few of these people over the fulcrum and join our side? I think the parties have mostly abandoned that idea now and they're for mobilization. They're like, well, we have three kids on our side, but that's one of our friends on the playground. Let's get him off the little circular thing and have him come over here. Now we got four kids on our side, but we can tilt the seesaw because we got four 80 pound kids and you only got three 80 pound kids. But, you are, I have to say, I really have to respect how far you're taking this analogy. It's really important. Wait, there's more because there's, there's three more. other ways. Oh, sorry. I didn't apologize. No, because there's three other ways to tilt the seesaw, right? You don't need to add kids to either side. You can move your kids to the outside, right? And that's uh-huh. what we're also seeing, right? You're saying, why move toward the middle to try to uh, accommodate people, right? Why sell out? And you see both parties. If you become a Joe Manchin, right? You get, you don't really get much help from the other side, and then you right. get ostracized by your side. So both parties, though not at the same rate, the Republicans have moved farther and farther, and we have plenty of evidence of that fact. Of it, right? You can move your kids to the end of the seesaw, and that leverages their weight more. So that's one way to tilt the seesaw. The other way to tilt the seesaw, of course, and people never think about this, is to move the fulcrum, right? If, the, if you have an evenly sized and you move the fulcrum under your opponent, you have more leverage because you have a, a what, right? Your weight is being leveraged higher. And that's essentially what the Republicans have in the Senate and the Electoral College. Their votes count right? This fulcrum is not in the middle of American politics. The fulcrum is undermining the Democrats a little bit because an equal election is going to favor the Republicans. In fact, a disequal election with a slight Democratic turnout advantage, Hillary Clinton, Al Gore, is actually going to uh, potentially, um, right, a 50-50 election, the Republicans are going to win the electoral college, right? And we know because of the Senate, right? But, you know, interestingly enough, that wasn't really the case eight years ago. Everyone, I mean, eight years ago, or 12 years ago, everyone kind of said, the Democrats had the electoral college advantage um, before 2016, in 2012 and 2008, and that that switched in 2016. Well, I mean, there was some argument in the 90s that the Democrats, because they looked like they could still hold Florida, they had an electoral college advantage. And in fact, if you remember on the eve of the 2000 election, the scenario that the Bush people were planning for is they thought they were going to win in the popular vote and lose the electoral vote, which is why Cheney had privately started this whole thing about trying to convert electors. So I think up until 2000, some people thought the Democrats had an electoral college advantage. But I think since Bush's win and certainly since Trump's win and certainly since Trump's near loss in 2020, where he lost by an even wider margin and still came pretty close to getting the electoral college in majority of those three states or four states uh, with my, what, 46,000 votes had flipped. I think, the, I, I don't know that anybody, I, you can maybe uh, illuminate me, but I don't know anybody that thinks that all else equal, there's a built-in Democratic advantage in electoral college. No, not today, but I think in, two, today, but, in 2000, I remember 2016 making the case that Democrats had a had a pretty strong advantage because, you know, places like Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, Democrats had won. I mean, Wisconsin Democrats had won that that's that state since 88. Uh, something like seven or eight straight elections they'd won. Pennsylvania, Michigan. I mean, since 92, they've they've basically won those three states every time but once. It was in 2016. So the idea was that, you know, Democrats just had this, they, they, Republicans hadn't shown they could win in the Midwestern states. Um, and Democrats. Well, this is like the Ron Republicans. Brownstein blue wall argument, right? right, like, so, right. But that's about performance. I'm just talking about the, how the votes are weighted, right? It's clear that whites and rural voters are outweighted compared right. to non-white voters and so forth. Right. But, but it just, it, it, it's, it's an interesting shift, but, but I, getting off the point a little bit, what I want to address here is this, you know, this idea that no party can, can, can 
flip the seesaw, to use your analogy. Yeah. Uh, you sort of see both parties then focus on mobilizing their key constituencies, their key core supporters. But you made a case in the piece that there is actually this small swing voter group that you call them Denny, Dennis Duffy voters, which is a 30 right. Rock reference, um, which I, I love that reference, by the way. <laughs> nobody knows that. And I love 30 Rock. It's a great show. Yeah, I love that. Uh, <laughs> and so can you explain a little bit about who these Dennis Duffy voters are? Yeah, so if you look at the visual in there, I, I find that to be the most interesting visual, at least from the 2016 election, which is that, again, if you sort of turn that 45 degrees in your mind or on your screen, you'll see that there are basically two barbells and there's not a lot of people in the middle. But where they are, is, a, if you turn it to the right, is above that barbell. There's no libertarians and they're really just populists, right? They're social conservatives and economic liberals like Dennis Duffy. And there's not a lot of them, but in a tight election, they'll be decisive. Now, in a landslide election, I don't think they got to... Those, those voters, let's not forget, you probably remember this, Michael. Between 2004 and 2008, there were counties where Obama did worse than Kerry, even though Kerry lost by about 2.5%, and Obama won by 7.5%. So we had a 10% net shift toward the Democrats, but there was this smattering of counties, and I have it somewhere if you, if you give me time and a PowerPoint, of counties that voted for Kerry at higher rates than Obama four years later. And where were they? In the Appalachian Spine, and in the North Country, in the Adirondacks of New York, and in Upper Maine, sort of all white counties, and then certain counties in the Midwest. and In the, in the South States. as well, though, right? Yeah, mostly, but in the Appalachian Spine. They, they, so there was an early sort of canary in the coal mine warning that, hey, these disaffected, non-college educated whites who are seeing declining, uh, you know, health metrics and are seeing a, a, a shortened, Longevity, right? Uh, some white voters actually yeah. had declining life expectancies uh, for three years in a row, according to the, to the Census Bureau, right? So those there was an early warning, and it was covered up because Obama won by seven, so you weren't really paying attention to the losing coalition and all that other stuff. And he won by a narrow margin in 2012, but that phenomenon started to grow there. And so I sort of kicked myself for not foreseeing what was happening in 2016 because the early warning signs were there, and you could see that shift away in these largely white and particularly downscale white counties across the country, but particularly in certain spots. And those voters really are the people who need the economic policy of the Democrats, but the Republicans and conservatives, knowing this, have been very shrewd about distracting them away from that and turning it into flags and Colin Kaepernick and Dr. Seuss and Mr. Potato Head and all this other stuff to get them to vote their values. And uh, you know, which doesn't mean they're not voting self-interestedly. It's just that they're giving more credence and saliency to the package of social and cultural issues, uh, you know, status threat. What does it mean to me, American whiteness right. and other sorts of things than they do? Like who's going to have Medicaid in our state, which actually might, uh, you know, prevent, uh, lower our, you know, death rates and, uh, right. you know, who's going to deliver Narcan, uh, solutions for our opioid crisis, right? They're not really paying attention to that. So, I mean, they are. It's affecting their lives, but they're not really, weighing that when they get in the electoral vote, they're just sort of weighing, well, the liberals are trying to teach critical race theory and teach people, white pe white kids that they have to hate themselves. Right. Those are the voters right? that Republicans are trying to win over with, with some of these cultural arguments. Yeah. And so the basic argument, and I want to write a follow-up if you allow me, maybe next month or something, is like, so how do you get around this? I mean, the Democrats always say, if you talk about policy, we win. If you talk about issues, we win. I mean, that's a talking point from democratic field campaigns and democratic campaign consultants for decades, right? Like if you just get people to focus on the issues, you know, they support us. And there's some truth to that, right? There's some truth to the Democrats on issue after issue, even Obamacare, which they tried to repeal and replace 60 times. The vast majority of the major provisions of Obamacare are supported by a majority of Republicans. That's just true, according to Kaiser. But people hate Obamacare, but they like all the provisions, right? right? So that's just, you know, is that magic or did Obama not sell it correctly? Or do people just not pay attention to it? And I think it's maybe a little bit of all of that. 
But the Republicans and the conservatives are very shrewd about not getting you to pay attention to that, right? Not getting you to pay attention to who delivered a policy, keep your 26-year-old kid on your insurance, which now Trump supports, right? Or, you know, pre-existing conditions, which now Trump supports, right? And taking taking credit for something that he opposed, right? That he tried to fight in court and, you know, said, I'm going to repeal and replace it, right? Um, they're very good at doing that. They're very good at getting data stuffy to vote about capital. Okay, but I want to, I want to push back here for a second. Okay. Because okay. one thing I, I, that I, I didn't raise when I was looking at the piece and I want it, but I want to raise it to you now. It seems to me that the biggest swing, uh, in 20, between 2016 and 2020 was suburban women voters. That was sure. a big, right. And I would question. argue yeah. that that, yeah. a lot of that swing was not economic, but was cultural. Uh, okay, yep. In the sense that they were, they were, uh, uh, they didn't like Trump. They, they, they were turned off by the direction of the Republican Party yep. and they embraced Democrats because of it. Um, I mean, I just from my own experience, you know, just from traveling around the country between 2016 and 2020, one thing that I saw more than anything else was the, um, the role that women played in, uh, becoming more involved in politics. I mean, I mean, I remember going to Tennessee, in a place where Democrats got swamps was uh, suburbs of, of, of uh, Memphis and okay. going on. And this was right before the 2018 election and talking to people there. And I mean, virtually every woman, everybody that I talked to was a woman and the people who were knocking on doors were women. Then they were people who overwhelmingly said to me, uh, you know, that they got involved because they didn't like Trump because they did were troubled by, by the treatment of Hillary Clinton, that they just felt they had to do something. And so how does that square with these, those people seem very, very important. So, I mean, I guess one question is what direction are they getting? Are, are they now firmly Democrats? Are they winnable for Republicans? And are they, are they separate from these, de- these Dennis Duffy voters? No, I think a strategic choice is, isn't a pure gain, right? It's a net gain. So there's not, lo- I'm not saying there's no losses there by playing these sort of constant cultural cards. There are certain voters who are going to backlash against that or simply going to recognize it uh, as a ploy that doesn't really deliver any substantive improvements to their livelihoods, but is designed to, to play attack and distract politics, right? I mean, if critical race theory is taken out of all the middle schools where it doesn't exist already, right? Or Sharia law is banned, even though we have 80,000 governments from the federal, the 57 states and territories, you know, 3,000 county governments and various municipal governments, city sewage districts, there's 80,000 plus governments. Is any single one of them operating on Sharia law that you're with? No, but if you get people to vote on that, right? If you can get people to vote on that, that works, right? But other people are going to be like, some people are going to be like, okay, that's obviously just meant to distract me and it's a ploy to get me to stop paying attention to them cutting taxes for corporations and wealthy people again, right? And so some people are going to wake up, I guess you could say to that and say, I'm, I'm sick of all this crap. They're really just but this counting that stuff. And then, in 2020. Yeah, I did. Yeah, for women, like you said, and suburbans and college educated whites. I mean, I look at my own experience and I'm sure you've had experience and you and I've talked about this. Like there are some people that I've sort of had to disassociate with that I went to high school and college with white guys. Right. But there are some white male friends of mine who have made this transformation who used to sort of be McCain kind of Bush voters and are like, I'm not, I can't vote for this guy. Right. Like I'm done with the Republicans who sort of figured this out that it's like, not really, you're not going to get taxed out of your business or you're not going to get taxed so much. You're going to, you know, foreclose on your home or something like that. And they've sort of wised up. And almost all of them are my college educated white male friends who used to be, you know, ideologically conservative, but now recognize that uh, it's not really necessary to anchor themselves to a Republican Party and certainly not the Trump Party. I mean, Trump isn't Party. there kind of a conundrum here for, for Republicans? On the one hand, 
to keep their voters happy, to win over this small segment of, of dentists, stuff, you know, as you call them, socially conservative voters. They need to play these cultural cards. But right. the effect of that is that they, they're going to end up alienating these suburban women voters who really did abandon them for Biden in 2020. I mean, I, it does seem as though there's, it's a hard needle to thread for them. Yeah, and you know, women are already a majority of the, vote, the voters as they've been since the 1980s in both presidential and congressional elections. And college-educated voters are increasing as a share of the electorate right. as well. So Republicans keep going back to uh, subsets of the electorate that are shrinking, and they're trying to maximize that. And like I said, and as we already discussed, sometimes they can get away with that because you know they don't need a majority of all votes cast in three consecutive Senate races every six-year cycle because they can get fewer votes and still control the Senate, and they don't even need to win the popular vote in in the presidential election to hold the presidency. Uh, but at some point, at least in theory, uh, that strategy is going to exhaust itself unless the Republicans can make gains with some other groups. And people say, well, they did a little bit better with Black men and Latinos this year, but the net vote among Latinos, because they're getting bigger, you know, the Democrats can afford to go from 67% down to 64% as the Latino population increases by 10% uh, election after election. And uh, you can get a smaller majority, but it's still a majority. So uh, Republicans are going to have to figure out something different. But in the short term, they're going to try to squeeze as many majorities and votes and wins out of this as possible. You know, in fact, they're conceding the fact that their issues aren't sufficient and their messages aren't sufficient that's by right. all this stuff that's going that's on in the right. states. If they really thought they were winning on ideas and winning on merits and winning on their strength of their platforms, they wouldn't be trying any of the stuff that they're doing. They're, they're, they're conceding that they can't win elections on. on so that, that brings up the point that, uh, so Ron Irving asked a question in the chat asking, what about okay. not having certain kids onto the playground at all, which is kind of what the Republican strategy is. And this is also a point that Les Ravine brings up about, That's true. you know, are we ignoring the increasing power of, of the GOP control of state legislatures and impacts gerrymandering and voter suppression on, on voting? So I think those two questions are sort of similar uh, in that, yeah. Republican strategy seems to be if they they can't win on the ideas alone, they they have this really difficult situation of threading the needle. So now they're trying a third strategy, which is basically to suppress the votes of Democratic voters and win and maintain rule in primarily red states. No, I think that's a good extension of the metaphor. They're keeping a few kids from getting into the playground or they're not they're allowed in the playground and they can watch, but they can't actually get on the seesaw. Right. right. Or they they put some extra weights on their side or what have you. You can you can you can use do the metaphor any different ways. But like I said, or they can just move the fulcrum under farther underneath the Democrats so that they're half now more than half of the seesaw just weighs more uh, because, you know, uh, because it's longer compared to the shorter side. And and some of those structures like the Electoral College and, and the and the Senate are already in the Constitution. They didn't have to do it. Uh, but some of them, I think, are are the result of contemporary modern politics, like these attempts to you know, penalize people for bringing other people water in line. I mean, it's absurd. Like some of the provisions. Or, I mean, there's literally, I think it was, was it in Texas? One of the provisions was if you drive someone to the polls, who's not a family member, you could um, face right. criminal. I mean, how is that even constitutional? Right? I don't, like, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, how can, how is it unconstitutional to bring somebody water? I mean, and by the way, if, if, if you're restricting people being brought water, you're conceding the fact that you're going to create long line. You're basically saying we know people are going to be in the line a long time and sure. we want to starve them or, or dehydrate them out of the line. It, it gives away the game within the giveaway of the game. Right. Right. And doesn't, but doesn't this also, I mean, again, I mean, I know, I know it does feel as though, you know, everything that they're, they're supposed to do. I mean, even something like this is going to alienate a certain segment of the electorate too. I mean, there's a lot of evidence that it helped 
you know, spur voter voter uh, um, uh, enthusiasm among Democrats in Georgia and in Texas, even though Democrats lost there. Um, you know, it does seem like there, this is a, a dangerous strategy. But I, I wanted to pick up on a point uh, to flip it around. Where's the danger for Democrats? Right. So the one thing that you sort of heard about and somebody asked a question about, you know, why Dems lost seat, House seats in 2020. And one argument is that the this was kind of a backlash to the Black Lives Matter protest to rising crime rates. You know, is that are Democrats in danger of going too far? of, uh, you know, focusing too much on their own cultural issues, on racial issues, LGBT issues, for example. And, and they have a risk, by doing so, a risk of alienating some of these new suburban voters who have come on to the, who supported Biden in 2020 and, and Democrats in 2018 going two years back. I mean, race is always a very tough issue, and the party that supports non-whites is always going to have a disadvantage, right, given the fact that we're still a white-majority country and that racism is still quite pervasive, unfortunately, in the country. I mean, to me, (laughs) my solution, what I want to write for you in the follow-up piece to this is, like, the Democrats have to get smart in the way the Republicans do by diffusing the other side's issues, right? Like, you know, Donald Trump, all his projection, if you look at the things that he's claimed other people have done, almost every single one of them he's done, right? He's just, yeah, just this week, cool. right? He's complaining that they were spying on his campaign while he's spying on members of Congress through the DOJ and Bill Barr. And so what I think the Democrats should do as a simple message with different variations and themes is they should just begin to create a cicada-like chirping that every time, and I'm talking about the candidates, and I'm talking about when the principals and the Swalwells and people and AOCs go on TV, they should say, every time the Republicans are talking about Mr. Potato Head and Dr. Seuss, you know what that, that just means they have no ideas. And just keep repeating, they're the party of no ideas. And the reason they're talking about BLM, the reason they're talking about this is they have no ideas, they have no, they're the party of no ideas, no solution, as a way of just gutting that. You know, as just gutting that issue, just like in the same way, like Trump brought out all the Clinton accusers as a way to diffuse any discussion of all the women he has harassed and raped. Right. Like, you know, it sounds stupid and it sounds facile. But when you accuse some kid on the playground or something and they accuse you back and you really did it, you say, oh, you're just saying that because I said that. And that's a stupid little tactic that middle school kids have figured out, but it works. Right. And so, like, it's a it's you a are really free- in love with this. Playground <laughs> yeah. really I'm just saying, are. you know. Playground politics are pretty smart. Kids are pretty. You got you got you got two kids this age. They're pretty clever, That's true. Right? I do. right? I do. Yeah. yeah, and uh it sounds really stupid, but the way to diffuse all those messages is to make it so that every time people hear it, they go, "Oh, who are you? they go again?" Right? They're doing that because they don't have any message. They don't have any platform. They don't have any solutions. All they want to talk about is Mr. Potato Head and critical race theory because they have no ideas. And so, um, you know, when people, especially when Democrats go on Fox, they should say that. And when Democrats in the more friendly media confines, I think they should say that. And that's a way to just pull the plug on that whole thing because the Republicans are going to keep doing that. They're going to keep peeling those Dennis Duffy voters on social and cultural values until it stops working. So you have to figure out a way to make that stop working. Now, for people who are really, you know, for right-wing evangelicals and stuff, it's all culture for them. That's not going to work for them. Right. I'm not talking about the whole universe of voters. I'm talking about the voters that we think can decide, and we know, decide elections because they do pay a little bit of attention and they do care about Social Security and Medicare and Obamacare and Medicaid and, you know, taxing the rich and, you know, right? Because you see these extreme majorities for people who want to 
have higher taxes on wealth, higher taxes on the rich, all this other stuff. In a country where you have seven, you rarely have 70 or 80 percent of the people who want to get rid of uh, Citizens United, right? Why aren't these things happening? And it's because, as many scholars have shown, we don't really, <laughs> the translation of the preferences of the regular rank and file voters do not translate as easy as the preferences of the wealthy, right? We know that. Right. We know and you have to figure out a way to get those issues, which are, you know, you're not trying to persuade anybody. Right. Notice I'm, you're not trying to persuade anybody that keeping your kid on, on your health insurance until 26, 70 or 80 percent of people, including 70 percent of Republicans, support that provision. So you're not you don't have to persuade anybody. This is about salience and attention. And I think the Democrats, if they believe they have the winning issues, and I think they do, and I think they truly believe that, then you should be winning easily. And why aren't you? And that's the question. And I don't think it has to be this sort of, you know, What's his name? The guy with the elephant metaphor and how you talk about there was a big discussion. You remember the 2000s about the language of politics and oh, I forget um, what that guy, the, oh, what was the guy's name. Yeah. Wallace, was that his name? Is it? No, I forget who he was, right? The guy, he was sort of a thing. He's a linguist, right? You know, and I, I think that that's, that's a little bit oversold, but there, there, there is something about messaging. I just think yeah, I'm not, see, the right and conservatives I mean, are I better at messaging. A little bit, because I just think that, I mean, my, and I may be over, over, emphasizing this point but i just think in in this day and age in era of polarization what matters is really party identification more than anything else and sure. i don't know that there's that much benefit in trying to win over other voters as there is in trying to basically mobilize your own supporters sure. and I, you know, I i totally agree with that it's still I, I would, a mobilization fight yeah it's i still think more, more people on my seesaw right right yeah. and i i think uh, i was struck by something uh you know there this was a i, I hate to draw analogies from one Congressional election and one special election, but this race in New Mexico, I think, was interesting. Last it happened uh, two weeks ago or last week. Um, Deb Haaland, who was the new Interior Secretary, who she became became right. an open seat, yeah, yeah, race there. Democratic candidate won by a larger margin than Haaland had won in 2020, and even that Biden had won in 2020. And what was striking about this is that her Republican opponent basically ran uh almost exclusively on the crime issue because apparently crime is is very high in Albuquerque and this is I mean post Walter White and it's still pretty right. high, which is pretty exciting. <laughs> Thank you. Breaking bad reference. Uh, but, That's right. Um you know it, it's it's it didn't work. That message did not play. Uh you know she the Democratic candidate was still successful and uh you you didn't have the kind of and now look against one race there wasn't a lot of money put into the race by Republicans. But uh one maybe uh, lesson to take away from this, I think certainly seems to be reflected in some of the polling I've seen, is that um, Republicans, as a Democrat, seem to be very happy with Joe Biden, very happy with Joe Biden, very happy with the direction the country is headed, very happy with happening in Congress. Um, and I don't I don't fully expect that to end, not just and, and I don't know that actually what happens in Washington matters that much. In the sense that as long as the economy is doing well, the pandemic is, you know, is, it's on, it's on its last legs, hopefully. Uh, and, you know, Biden is sort of pushing his priorities in Congress. I kind of expect to, that Democrats are going to remain loyal to Biden and going to come out for him in 2022. Doesn't mean they're going to hold the House. I mean, they're going to hold the Senate, but it does seem as though you Democrat, that, that Biden has done a very effective job of keeping Democrats happy, keeping liberals happy, avoiding a lot of the fights that you and I, we've been around politics for a long time. I mean, in 93 and 2009, how much time was spent on intra-democratic fights? We've seen very little recently, but in general, very little of that kind of infighting that we've seen in the past. And that seems to me a very smart thing that Biden is doing, and that may end up being having a huge impact in 2022. Yeah, no, I think Biden is very frustrating uh, 
Democratic president for Republicans, right? They yes. much rather Kamala Harris, is, Kamala Harris is the president. And that's why they talk about it all the time, because it's easier to talk about gender. It's easier to talk about race and Harris mm-hmm. and to, to tap into people's, you know, basic suspicions and, and their prejudices in a way that it's harder with Biden, right? It's harder with Biden. And he doesn't really get caught up in these cultural war fights and all this other stuff. And he's kind of your Uncle Joe and all that stuff. And he's a white guy and he's been around and he was for a long time, pretty centrist Democrat. And he certainly moved to left. And, and, and notice when they do try to depict him as like a crazy liberal, right? They do it by labels only like liberal socialist and the, you know, these old tried and true. Ron Johnson called him right. Marxist liberal socialist. Liberal socialist progressive Marxists. He just like, I'm throwing the kitchen sink in for labels. What they don't want to talk about is his policies, right? They're afraid to actually talk about the things that he supports because they're pretty popular, right? If you look at yeah. the infrastructure bill, if exactly. you look at the COVID relief plan, they're not attacking him on policy because that's going to backfire. So they just, they're down to labels. And again, as soon as that's over, they want to shift back to talking about CRT or whatever. And so I CRT, think he's a very, those, he's a, those he's a it, that's critical race theory. He's a hard target to hit for them, and they don't like that. And that's good. And so I think the party will rally around. What I worry about Biden is, and this is not just a a critique of Biden because it was true of Reagan, it was true of Clinton, it was true of Obama, is presidents tend to worry about their own majorities, and they don't really worry, and they tend to lose seats because they're less concerned about their congressional majorities. And I want to see what kind of campaigner Biden is now that he's president and what kind of resources he's going to put behind candidates in 2022 because uh, presidents are – particularly first-term presidents, and history is very clear on this, are more concerned about their re-election than they are their party standing down the ballot. I mean, Obama did lose a 1,000 seats across the ballot during his eight years and left the party in a weaker state than he inherited it, uh, despite his two wins. So that's a, that's an interesting point, because, uh, you know, one arc, now, now to that point, you remember the Clinton years and triangulation, right? So Bill Clinton tried to triangulate himself between uh, a perceived liberal democratic uh majority not majority minority in the house right and a conservative uh majority in the house as well um and to be between these two between these two uh um forces that doesn't really play anymore you can't do that anymore right because the because the with polarization partisan unification is so strong that that as biden goes so i would argue so goes the democratic party and so if biden is popular that will help democrats uh, if he's not, po- and that's, by the way, that's not a revelatory statement. I mean, it's in general, in midterm elections, you know, parties do better if, the, if the candidate, if the president is popular. When the president's unpopular, they, they don't do as well. I mean, there is some connection there. There's less connection, say, between the economy and midterm election results. But in this case, it seems even more pronounced that if Biden is popular and Democrats are happy with Biden, that they seem that they may be more inclined to vote Democratic and come out and vote in 2022, because the issue for Democrats has always been in midterm elections, they don't come out and vote. Not right. They're necessary to them to win. But yes, but wait, first of all, that pattern that held from 1934 to 1994, where parties lost seats in the midterm elections, uh, excuse me, until uh yeah, until 1998, when Clinton actually picked up seats in the House after the Lewinsky, amid the Lewinsky scandal. And of course, Bush picked up seats in 2002. Of course, that right. was after 9-11. So that pattern broke in 1998, 2002. And also... <laughs> You know, it, it, it could it could break in 2002 as well. And I think the model here, to go back to somebody we mentioned earlier, is Terry McAuliffe, right? Terry McAuliffe is daring Donald Trump to come into his state, Virginia, right? He's not daring Donald Trump to come to Massachusetts, right? It's a, it's a pretty comfortably blue state or a heavy purple state now leaning toward blue. 
But this is not like, you know, some, it's not Bernie Sanders daring Donald Trump to come to Vermont. Terry McAuliffe is giving Donald Trump a rabbit to chase in Virginia this week. And I think that's brilliant, by the way, because he recognizes that Trump is a liability for a lot of these candidates. He is, right? Trump is a liability. He lost the popular vote twice and he lost the midterm elections in 2018. He's not really a winner. He's a winner in the primary stages, right? And candidates are petrified of getting primary by a right. Trump style candidate. But in the general election, he is an albatross. And Terry McAuliffe knows that. He wants, uh, I'm blocking on the guy's name, he's a Republican nominee. He wants that guy pictured side by side. And I guarantee you, McCall's ads will have Trump's face in there. And, you know, Republicans do that all the time with Nancy Pelosi and AOC and the squad and all that other stuff. Democrats should respond in kind. They should have pictures of Donald Trump and all these ads. And by the way, you know, as I've tweeted out, every Democratic candidate from sheriff to Senate should, should ask their Republican opponents in a debate and ask in front of the media so the media has to follow up. They should say, do you think Donald Trump is a good president? Yes or no? Do you think January 6th was a domestic terrorist event and was led by Republicans? Do you think, you know, um, Donald Trump, you know, or whatever, like three or four sort of litmus test questions in terms of their fealty to Donald Trump? Because there's no good answer to that question. But you can't say no. You can't. You'll lose it. Right. But if you say yes, then you got to start explaining. But in most districts in America, I mean, most House districts. Might not matter. Sure. The Republican would answer I don't think it was an insurrection. I support Donald Trump because either they are a in a district that is solidly red and they want to keep Trump voters happy or a district that's blue enough where they want to keep Trump supporters happy. and They have some hope of election. I mean, you saw this in 2020 in 2020. People like Cory Gardner, right, Right. who who is running in a blue state who could could not separate himself from Trump, didn't even try to. And of course, he lost. Right. Right? So I I think. The question I've always, I've been curious about, and this is, I think, the number one question we have, we still have not gotten to an answer, I don't know, is who does Trump help more in 2022? Republicans or Democrats? I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know. Well, like, look, obviously in the solidly red and blue house districts, it doesn't matter because we right, of course. the general election. Right. So we're not really, ta- I should have been clear that we're not talking about those districts that are foregone conclusions, but in the swing districts, uh, and we don't know what the maps are in all the states just yet and, and how swingy those districts, how competitive they will be. I don't know the answer to that question either, to be honest with you. I mean, I do think Trump is going to be a liability in some places, and maybe he'll be an asset in other places. But um, but we'll see. I mean, uh, I, I think overall he's a liability, though, and I think the evidence so far shows that. I mean, it's hard to lose re-election as an incumbent, and he managed to do it, and he lost by a pretty sizable amount. If you are a red state Republican, he's not a liability at all. Right. We're talking about the swing districts, though. Right. And I think it's interesting. I, I, I go back. I mean, I'm fascinated by Ron Johnson. A, because. Right. How does he win there? Right. Yeah. yeah but he's won two elections. He's one of the most conservative senators of the Senate in right. a state pretty blue. Uh, he may, he's up for re-election, although he may not run. But if he right. is going to run, he's made, clearly made the decision that he's going to run as a nut job Republican. And right. I assume he's making, again, I mean, he may not run, but the calculation there is, uh, it's a narrow state. Uh, Biden barely won it. If I can mobilize Republican voters by being a nut job Republican, then that's what I'm going to do. And I can't win over Democratic votes. But it's their only strategy. I mean, Lindsey Graham gave the game away when he said that stuff. It's like there's no way any Republican in any part of the country, even sort of moderate states or blue, you know, purple states like Wisconsin, you, you can't start with 20 percent of your electorate saying, screw you if you don't support Trump. So they're all anchored to him. They're all anchored to him, whether they live in like rural Oklahoma district that voted 80 percent for him whether they live in Wisconsin, which has been the swingiest state in presidential elections over the last two decades. You can't start the election with one fifty one fifth of your voters so pissed that you're gonna stay home or vote 
for a third party candidate or even vote for the Democrat to make a point to you. Wait, Wisconsin's the swingiest? Wouldn't it be Florida or Ohio? No, no. The, the average difference between Democrats and Republicans since 2000 in Wisconsin is, 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 right? Like, Wisconsin was as, almost as close as Florida in 2000. It was closer than Florida in 2000. Close in 08 or 2000, to, closer in 2008 and certainly closer than Florida in, in the last two elections, was it not? Okay, we only yeah. have a few minutes left, so I, I've got taken some questions. Anybody wants yeah, let's to take some questions. ask a question, please uh, raise your hand or unmute yourself and just, you know, fire away. If anybody's got anything. I'm not seeing any hands up. Uh, there was a hand up earlier from somebody, I don't, but I think maybe they put their question in the chat. Like, I'm not sure. Yeah. All right. And we've hit most of the questions, I think, in the chat. Um, the only, I guess, uh, only question... Yeah, Lester's point about the increasing power of the GOP states. I mean, yeah, I mean, first of all, let's be clear to go back to our polarization point. The number of divided state legislatures is at a basically a 70 year low right now. We have these trifecta states, which is either, you know, three right. Democrats I mean, controlling everything or Republicans. Oh, you can't hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Just explain what trifecta uh, Yeah, so trifecta state means one party controls the governor in both chambers of the legislature, at least the 49 states that have bicameral legislatures. Uh, and the number, whether it's Democrats or Republicans, the, the number of those is at a, essentially not an all-time high, but a, a, in the modern period, it's, a, it's at a record high. And there's very few states that are split, like Maryland, which usually is a true blue Democratic state, actually, for the moment, at least has a Republican governor. And so, but there are more of them that are Republican. Right now, I think it's 23 uh, trifecta Republican states and 15 uh, Democratic trifectas for 38. And there's 12 states that have some mix uh, of divided government. And uh, to, to go to, to Lester Levine's question, I mean, this is a disadvantage for the Democrats in a federal system. And, and, and it's another version of the Senate malapportionment question and another version of the Electoral College question, right? I mean, the Republicans will be able to, granted they're smaller states in places like Wyoming and Idaho, they are going to be able to control not just the policies in those states, but the political and electoral terrain in those states. And we already are seeing that. And insofar as we're moving toward an illiberal future here, an anti-democratic future, which I, we are, right? I mean, we, the last slide of my piece is that nothing's, nothing's at stake except, you know, basically the future of the Republic. Um, there's an imbalance there too. There's an asymmetry. And most times in American politics, when you look at those asymmetries, whether it's, you know, having a Fox News and there's no liberal Fox News, those asymmetries almost down the line uh, favor uh, Republicans and conservatives. They just do. And that's true on the state level for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think you do about it. I wrote, and I wrote this piece earlier this week about this and in, in about the Republican efforts to basically make it harder to political, to engage in political protest in, um, in red states. And, you know, I think if you look at that element, uh, again, attempting to have a chilling effect on political protest combined with voting rights restrictions combined with aggressive gerrymandering. I mean, these states are trying to create what is, in effect, one-party rule, right? I mean, they're yeah. trying to basically say, we have power, and we're going to use it to prevent Democrats from really being able to unseat us. And, you know, in places like Wisconsin, for example, which, as you said, is a swingy state, but uh, it's Look at the state legislature, right? It's solidly Sorry. controlled by Republicans because they have so gerrymandered the state, and they've put conservative ideologues on the Supreme Court in the state that it's impossible for Democrats to win back the state, state legislature. Same thing in North Carolina, where there's a Democratic governor. So, you know, what I, I think this is unfortunately what we're seeing now is this process in which uh, Republicans are basically making it impossible to lose in these states, which also means there is no reason for them to moderate their policies. 
You know, I look at like I was I mentioned Tennessee. You know, Tennessee in 2008 had a Democratic one of the two houses controlled by Democrats. Uh, now they're both solidly Democratic, and in fact, I think the Senate's like a 30 to four margin, some crazy number. It's it's really insane. How Probably Republican, yeah, right, yeah, they're Republican. Yeah. In Tennessee. So look at someone like Marsha Blackburn, who's almost as, as nuts as, as Ron Johnson. Like how yeah. is somebody that reactionary and that, but, but because that's where the direction of the state is and there's no reason. And look, for her, in her standpoint, Democrats can't really win in the state. The only thing she has to be afraid of politically is, is a primary challenge. She's not going to get a primary challenge because there's nobody more conservative than her. Well, I mean, if there is, I'd, I'd hate to meet them. Uh, so for her, it's every incentive in the world to be as insanely extreme and radical as she as she has been in her entire political career there's no one moderate her policies and frankly and and i think what's even more disturbing is someone like ron johnson who has i the most incentive of every any member of the of the senate caucus to moderate his policies and he's not doing it right i mean pat toomey basically said i don't want to moderate i don't want to i can't be conservative enough to win i'm just going to retire which is what he did obviously you saw Jeff Flake did the same thing in Arizona. Jeff Flake is a very conservative guy, but basically said, and he said this in his, in his departure, I can't win being Jeff Flake. So it, there is just no incentive, even in blue states, for Republicans to moderate their policies. And that is a wrap. I mean, with a, with a few exceptions here and there, that's a really stunning development. I'm going to take us a full circle. We started at the beginning of the conversation. You know, the incentive structure in American politics is so unusual because we've all, you and I grew up at a time when the idea was the incentive structure was to appear more moderate, to be more moderate, to be somebody who could appeal to both parties. That is no longer the case in American politics. It just isn't. Uh, nope. And certainly it's more true for Democrats because there are Democrats who do think they have to do that, like Joan Anshin, like Kirsten Sinema. But Republicans don't feel that way at all. And they're right. There's no reason to moderate their views and they shouldn't politically. As cynical as that is for me to say, it's true. They shouldn't do it. Yeah, and they're controlled the state legislators allow us sort of a lock-in effect that they can lock that in so that they, they are essentially politically or partisan immune. And they are. Right. Untouchable. And this is a really sad development for American politics because, uh, government's going to swing wildly on the national level back and forth as it does because, uh, there's, there's no compromise positions, right? And look at all the compromises that Joe Biden made and all the sit-downs he had and paring down his infrastructure bill and he's still going to get no votes, right? I mean, why? Because there is no incentive to vote for the other side. If things go well, the other side gets credit. This is the lesson that Hillary Clinton learned the hard way in 2008. Voting with the other side, you don't get any credit if it goes right, and you certainly are going to get latched on to blame if the Iraq war blows up in your face, which is exactly what happened. So you might as well vote with your party because that's a safe play 99 times out of 100. I'll be shocked, actually, if any Republicans end up voting for the compromise infrastructure bill. Though maybe some of them, like, well, I think some of them might, but well, I, maybe they will. That'd be great. Think about that for tonight. That that said they might. But I'll make one last point. You know, it's interesting to think about in, in 2019 and 2020, when Democrats controlled the House, Nancy Pelosi went out of her way to try to protect the more moderate members of her caucus. Right. Right. She still lost a bunch of seats. Didn't really help all that much. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's interesting to see Kevin McCarthy basically making no effort to protect moderate members. He threw John no, Kaka, who negotiated the January 6th bipartisan yeah. under the bus. Because the idea, I think, and I think actually McCarthy is, I hate to say it, because I, I think it's, I think it's bad for the country, but I think he's, he got the right, he has the right approach that, that trying to protect your members by making them seem more moderate, it's maybe in a few places it helps, but generally speaking, it doesn't help you all that much. It really doesn't. 
No, and, it, and it's I don't even know if it's about moderate conservative or Trump non-Trump because Luce Cheney is obviously more conservative than Elise Stefanik. I just was in Elise's district and because I'm from upstate New York and I spent a lot of time in the Adirondacks and she ran as a moderate and won as a moderate, right? And, and now she did Trump, but Trump. she but she had to pass a loyalty test and that loyalty test was Trump or not Trump and Liz Cheney failed that test and she passed that test and she's in. So it's a new it's a new and different witness I think than on the on. On the Republican side to the Democratic side, well, that's a debate for another day, I guess. Yeah, and actually, we need to finish up because we are coming up on the one third time when the call is going to end. So I want to just thank Tom. That was, as always, a fascinating conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Thank you, all of you who are listening uh, to the recorded version of this. And I will see you next Friday for another exciting Zoom Truth and Consequences chat. Thanks for coming. Bye-bye.